Well, happy to see everybody here today. <clears throat> I've got a little of the Santa Ana in my face and my, and my sinuses, but we'll get through it. This talk started in Torrance uh, last week. And I spoke to a Catholic high school twice, comparative religions class on Buddhism, and I stopped off at a restaurant on the way back to L.A. to have some lunch. And as I was paying for my lunch, there was a sign of a sick child dangling from the ceiling. And they were collecting money for, I guess, Children's Hospital or something like that. And they said to me, would you like to donate a dollar? And I said, no. And there was an uncomfortable silence. And then he said, well maybe next time. I said, probably not. <laughs> and there was more silence. And then I proclaimed, I feed cats. And he looked at me like I was insane. I thought, should I explain to him what I do? Or should I just let it go? I decided to let it go because how can you explain why feeding cats would be more important than taking care of sick children. Then, a couple days later, synchronicity set in, and somebody said to me, what is compassion? And I thought, wow, yeah, okay, yeah. And how do you get it if you don't have it? And I go, okay, yeah, yeah. So then I thought back to a book I read years ago called How Can I Help by Ramdas. And in one of the chapters it talked about being wise with your generosity. There was a, a woman who lived in New York and everything was really expensive and she only had a few dollars of disposable income. And yet in her neighborhood there were homeless people, there were encampments, there was just a lot of need to practice generosity. And she said, you know, I sometimes feel like I should give more money than I can. What would you suggest, Ramdas? And Ramdas said, well, it's good to have a budget for your generosity. Decide how much you can afford to give away each week. Two dollars, three dollars, four dollars, and stick by that. Because no matter how much money you think you have, it's not enough to change the world. And Bill Gates has decided to give three billion dollars away, but he's specific in how he's going to give it away. So there's just no way to give it all away and make the whole world a better place. Now, in my practice of generosity and in feeding the cats, I have made a commitment to do that twice a day. So we have our feeding time in the morning and we have our feeding time in the evening and then in between there's play and petting and talking and people ask me do you talk to your cats of course of course I talk to them they don't understand what I say but they feel what I say and then they go yeah this poor guy he's getting old you know, <laughs> talking to his cats it sometimes costs 100 to 150 dollars a month 
And there were plenty of people, I must say, that, that helped me out with the expenses of feeding the cats. But it's a commitment I've made in a specific way to change the world and reduce the suffering. And I can't save the world, but I can feed eight cats. I can't save the world, but I can interact with eight cats in a way that makes their life better. And so I have no guilt when I say, no, I'm sorry, I can't give you that dollar to save that sick child because I'm saving eight cats. Now, is a human life more important than eight cats? Well, perhaps, you know, as Jack Benny said one time, he was being robbed, give me all your money, and please, give me all your money, or I'll kill you. And Jack Benny said, I'm thinking. <laughs> and that's sort of how I feel when I look at my compassionate activity in feeding the cats. I said, well, you know, I could do this and I could do that, but I've sort of chosen to do this, or they have chosen me to do this. And, and that's probably enough in this lifetime at my level of income. That's just about as much as I can do on a consistent basis. There's something that makes you feel good about giving a dollar, but you know what? It's just so easy to give a dollar. How about feeding someone and taking food to someone and taking the time and the inconvenience and a daily activity that tends to change the world in a kind and generous way. And, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's a heck of a lot of work. And these cats don't die right away. They're good for 10, 15 years. It's a big commitment. Not just one time at the restaurant. So I feel better, or they feel better. So, having that as the basis for this talk, where does compassion come from? Well, I think it comes from an intention. I think it comes from the intention of loving kindness. Now, I have a whole lot of issues with love. I don't like the world. I know it's the word. I know it symbolizes a lot of pleasant feelings. But this is how I break it down. Love. One of the strongest attachments we're ever going to have. What did the Buddha say about attachment? It always leads to suffering. Oh, man. So, even the mild kind of love, like loving your cats, having an attachment to your cats, when they die, you're going to suffer. When they're sick, you're going to suffer. Okay. But how about the idea of men and women coming together in relationship out of love? Well, what is that? I said to myself, because, you know, I've looked at my relationships in the past, and I've had some wonderful relationships, and, and yet they never stuck, because it seems I wasn't attached enough. There was a little hesitancy on my part for full commitment, that I thought, well, maybe I'll just sort of do half commitment, 
when I consider that mostly sex. And, <laughs> and then the rest of the commitment may just appear by it, all by itself. So what, what's the deal with love? Well, love is attachment. There's also this kind of greed and lust that goes with this love. It's, it's, it's not in the forefront. It's, sometimes it's hard to see right away. But there's always a sense of greed, that this is mine, and this makes me feel good. And then there is a sense of ownership and control that springs out of the greed and the lust. And that can really turn a relationship sour quickly. I've come to understand that the reason in Buddhism we never use the word love independently all by itself is because of that. So what did the Buddha do? He attached another word to love. Kindness. Whoa! So in order to have love in Buddhism you also have to have it connected to kindness. And then you say to yourself, well what the heck is kindness? What am I supposed to do? And it seems to me that kindness reduces suffering. When you're kind to someone, you're reducing suffering. You're suffering, they're suffering, the suffering found in the situation. So it balances all the negative aspects of love with the positive aspects of kindness. And now we have this sort of middle path love, loving kindness. Okay, how do I start my compassion? Well, I have to get this loving kindness uploaded to my consciousness. Because I find that most of the time I don't have a lot of love or kindness as I go through the streets and sidewalks of Los Angeles. I really disappoint myself that I'm not more enlightened and can see the beauty and the wonder of this world. I see a lot of struggle and a lot of failure and a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of just uncomfortable people in uncomfortable situations. Now the Buddha said I'm in charge, that I can look at any situation and see it in a multitude of ways. So why can't I see the situation through the filter of loving kindness? Well it's possible but it requires me to work. It requires me to upload it every day. So let me share with you loving kindness as I do it and you can sort of see how it works for me so I can change my mind and see the world in a more I don't want to say optimistic but a more realistic way so I start in the morning even before the first cup of coffee I start in the morning and I say may I be happy peaceful and free from suffering may no harm come to me may no difficulties come to me May no problems come to me. May I always find fulfillment. May I also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. So I start with me, the selfish guy that I am. Because I've got to be in that love and kindness place before I can extend it 
to other people or other things. So I let it sort of resonate in my head for a while, you know, before I go to the next place. Now I start to include people in my loving kindness. So it starts with me, it always starts with me, until the me isn't there any longer. May my parents, my partners, my pets, my brothers and sisters, friends and relatives, all the people I don't know, and all the people I don't like, may they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. Now the most profound aspect of that, all the people I don't know, which is, turns out to be about seven billion. <laughs> you know, and, and now I'm going to extend love and kindness to seven billion people. And if I can just visualize all the people on the earth, like a bunch of ants on an anthill, and just there they are, coming and going, that's the place I need to be when I go on the streets of L.A. All the people I don't know, because I'm seeing all these people for the first time. I actually see everybody for the first time. But it's more obvious when they're a stranger. And I'm going, wow, okay. What's my response to all the people that I don't know? My response after the loving-kindness meditation to all the people I don't know is one of familiarity. They all look sort of familiar. I can't remember where I saw them or what we talked about, but everybody looks a little more familiar than they did when they were strangers. And that allows me to feel more comfortable, that I can walk into a room filled with strangers and feel comfortable because I've seen everybody before. And we can start a conversation. And of course you're going to start the first conversation every time. And that's fine. And then all the people I don't like. Now, that list is growing shorter as I get older which is good, but there's still some people that I feel uncomfortable around. And it has nothing to do with them. It has something to do with me. A deeply rooted issue that hasn't been resolved, that hasn't come to the light of day yet. I still need more practice. And I continue and I start to see that every time I project myself onto the person I don't like, what I'm really seeing are certain characteristics of me that I don't like and I haven't been able to change yet or reform yet or, or make them more round and soft and pliable yet. Okay, so now I keep looking at myself and all these people that I don't like. 
And I go, wow, look at all the years I've had to work on myself, and yet it's still not complete. I still have so much more work to do. So much more time than I need to set aside for my own practice, which as I get older, I'm starting to see with much greater clarity that I do need to put some time aside for myself so I can die well. And before I die well, I can age well. And aging well is not hating everybody in your life. And I've seen some people who seem to hate everybody in their life, but actually I think it's more hating the situation they find themselves in. And the uncomfortable aspects of having a mind and body as we age. It doesn't get any better. One of the things that's driving me crazy about my aging process is I keep dropping things to the floor. And I'm holding it one moment and it's on the floor the next. And I'm thinking, how the heck did that happen? What's wrong with my hand? And then I just take a snapshot of that moment and I realize what I was doing. It was I was thinking about two other things while I was holding the cup and I got distracted by my thoughts. And I need to have a laser-like focus now on holding that cup. That's the only thing that exists in my life, is holding the cup. And then I won't drop it. But then I put the cup on the table, and the cat knocks it off. (laughs) I'm going, you know what? Maybe the cup needs to be on the floor. (laughs) So I look at my own aging process, and I, rather than just being uncomfortable all the time, I just smile and go, this is really a trip. And nobody ever told me. You know, friends, relatives never got me ready for the aging process. It was almost like we don't talk about it. The elephant in the room. One day you'll be old, we're not going to talk about it. One day your hair will fall out, we're not going to talk about it. Because it's so gradual, oftentimes it gives you a chance to adjust to the new, older you. And then pretty soon there's no hair, and then there's no hearing, and there's no seeing, and the list goes on and on. And there you go. Can you be kind to yourself with all that's happening? Can you still love yourself and be attached to the self that's that's not really there, but wish it good luck in its journey? So we have the people we don't know, we have the people we don't like, and then the third level that I go to may everything with form and without form, with consciousness and without consciousness, with legs and without legs, may all beings Be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. 
So what this seems to do is bring you to like a new level of awareness. I mentioned a while back about our laundry room and the couple cockroaches that have made it their home. And they don't bother me anymore because I'm doing loving kindness to all the cockroaches in the world. They don't bother me. And they're not in my room, they're in the laundry room, you know. And sometimes, you know, I'll drop them a little bit to eat, you know, and they're fine. But there's so many things that are alive that we're not aware of all around us, all the time. The grass that grows, the flowers that bloom, the trees that bear fruit, you know, the koi pond, the fish, all these little wonderful things that we're just intimately connected to all the time. And yet somehow through the magic of self, we have disconnected and end up being separate. Those things need to be honored and kindness needs to be extended to them as well. And then you might look at your diet and say, well, maybe I could be a vegetarian and that way I wouldn't have to eat these life forms that have so much, that experience so much pain and suffering when they're killed so I can eat them so I can sustain my life. And then you sort of wonder, well, you know, in eating all these animals, do I honor them by having a better life? Do I honor them by doing good things and good activities, putting my life into a place where I can be of service to others and reduce suffering in the world? Or do I go to the Dodgers game? Which might be okay too. There's a couple hundred thousand people that love to do that, probably more. But it allows you to look at your life differently when you see all these animals that have been killed for you so you could sustain your life. Do you honor them with having a better life? And ultimately, do you honor them by not eating them and maybe becoming a vegetarian? And I was at a seminar yesterday in the valley, Pacoima, really hot yesterday. And it was um, Japanese Americans. We come together to talk about Christianity and Buddhism and activism. And um, the, the idea of being a vegetarian came up. And, and a lot of people just couldn't wrap their head around being a vegetarian because sort of like, what's the point? You know, you know, a cheeseburger is a cheeseburger. And it is, a cheeseburger is a cheeseburger. But, but the process of being a vegetarian, I think, comes out of being sensitive to the issues of all living beings. I don't think it's, it's found in Buddhism. It's, there are vegetarian Buddhists and there are non-vegetarian Buddhists, and they both can achieve nirvana, and one doesn't get there faster because of what they eat or don't eat. And yet, if you look at the world through your loving-kindness reflection every day, you see that the suffering in the world starts at the bottom and goes to the top, and, 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 and nothing is excluded. It's all there. So now you're setting up this mindset, the mindset of compassion. This is my definition of compassion. The activity of kindness. Compassion is the activity of kindness. So it's not just thinking about being a good person, it's about doing what good persons do, and there really isn't good or bad in Buddhism. There's really not like evil in Buddhism. What we have rather is we have skillful and unskillful, more suffering, less suffering. So can I be a more skillful person? 
I have the mindset now that will enable my speech and action to manifest in a much more skillful way in my day. Can I take that speech and action and make it always kind? Speak kind words, do kind things. Now, I have this idealism in my mind that, yes, I can do that. I practice every day. I've been ordained almost 20 years now. I can do this. And yet I fail miserably many times. And I'm thinking, what's the problem? What's the biggest issue of being kind? And for me, the biggest issue of being kind is time. It takes more time to be kind. And sometimes if you are going from point A to point B and don't have the time, it's really difficult to let somebody merge into your lane. And usually it's an SUV. <laughs> and they're going to merge whether, they, whether you want them to or not. And so what do I do? Do I sort of like challenge the behemoth in my little Suzuki and say, no, I'm in this lane and I'm not giving you permission to be in front of me. Well, I could do that, but it's just a, a useless activity. So I let them in. And it doesn't take a block or two more where somebody else wants to come in. And always in my lane and always in front of me. And I'm thinking, why do they pick me? Why don't they get the person in back of me? Well, they don't. And then I let them in. And I might, you know, grumble a little bit have some unskillful thoughts arise in my head and continue and that's sort of how the day works you know and then you're at food for less and the person behind you has one item sir can I go in front of you I only have one item and you have 24 cans of cat food <laughs> sure you can go in front of me and then you go out to the parking lot and then you try to pull out of your little space and there's cars coming this way and cars coming that way. And does anybody wait for you? You've waited. You've helped 43 people today. <laughs> and all you want to do is get out of your parking space. Will they let you do that? No. And then you sort of have to just forgive yourself in wanting the world to be different than it is. You, you, you don't forgive them, you give, forgive you, because you know it could be better if only they would appreciate what you're going through and what you need to do, but nobody does. They can't appreciate you and they don't know what you're going through. So you forgive yourself in expecting them to know. And there's a certain flow, <coughs> excuse me, there's a certain flow that you find. It's called synchronicity. And, and everything is just working at its own speed and its own pace. And it's not yours at that moment. But can you adjust? Can you find the brake? Can you find the accelerator? Can you ease into that lane of synchronicity, of flow? And yes, you can. But now you need to engage in love and kindness. You need to go in there and just sort of stay there. You go, okay. Love and kindness. I have love, I have kindness, and I'm going to stay here even if they are a jerk. And then you say, but no, you can't use that word either. You can't call them a jerk. Because that's not love and that's not kind. 
So then you call yourself a jerk. And then you go, no, no, you just have to delete that word. Okay. Now we come to compassionate activity. And we say, well, how can I be compassionate? What kind of activity is necessary? And it's, it's speech and action, and is it helping people? Is that compassion and activity? Well, sometimes, you know, the thing is, I think the more we become connected and, and the less we become disconnected, we, we, we start to see that we're really working as a group all the time. And in L.A. we have this wonderful 400 or 4 million person group that we're part of. And so there's the ebbs and the flows, the gives and the takes, and it's just, it's an interesting dance that we do to practice compassion. The activity necessary to reduce the suffering of others. It could start with you, but it ends up with them. Okay, so now you start with loving kindness in the morning. Then you have activity that is modified throughout the day that reduces the suffering of others and ultimately yourself. And then you get to the end of the day. And what do you do then? How do you, how do you adjust for the next day or for sleep time? Well, what I do is I do the loving kindness again. They become bookends on my day. So people say to me, how often do you practice meditation? Well, not as often as I used to. Because I got stuff to do now. When I was training, I had less stuff to do and more time for training. And once I got the moniker of monk, I have now more stuff to do and less time. And so I put a little bit of time aside for my loving-kindness meditation because I know that's really the root of this whole practice. That's like where it starts. And, and the Dalai Lama said something about, uh, you know, my religion is kindness. And, and he was right. That's it. That's the deal. It's, it's kindness. And can you manifest in a kind and compassionate way through speech, through action, through intention, in every situation you find yourself in. It requires mindfulness and focus and a willingness to be second or third or fourth. Ah, you know, it can be so difficult because the line keeps growing in front of you, you know, and not behind you. Uh, A friend of mine uh, 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 a Japanese bishop, Nori Ito, talked about something yesterday. He said, in his tradition, which is, which is more pure land, um, one of the founders talked about being equal. He said the whole idea in living in community and, and practicing kindness and compassion is being equal, not being better. And he said... The best way I have found to be equal is to be on the first rung of the ladder. And I thought, what does that mean? He said, if you go to the second or third rung of the ladder, there are people you look down on. You have the first rung of the ladder, you're only looking up. And I thought to myself, wow, that is really interesting because... As you become better as a human being, as you become more of a somebody, as you become recognized as a somebody, they expect you to be at a certain place. 
They expect you to have an ego that will manifest to make whatever talk or activity you're doing interesting for them, so they'll pay attention and learn something. You go, yeah, okay. But that means I have to be at the top of the ladder, the top rung, and proclaim from that view what you've come to understand as being real and important. And there's a bit of truth to that as well, because if you're at this level and your boss is at this level, you don't know what he's going through or what he has to do because you can't see over the top. But the one up there can look down and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But after that presentation, after that seminar, after that retreat, who leaves the retreat? Is it the one on top? The one who professes to see uh, the great truth? Well, I have found that, that in my case, I, I have a, a, a wonderful sense of ego arising when I give presentations. And I find it necessary in order to do what I do. So I, I am quietly driving to my commitment to speak, and I put on my robes and I adjust my consciousness, and all of a sudden, Kusala shows up. <laughs> And he just sort of glides into the room, his robes are flowing, he's saying hi to everybody, you know. And then he gives his presentation and sometimes he brings his musical instruments so he can just show people how creative he is and how much more practice he needs to do. And then, and, and then it's over and Kusla is over too. And sometimes you just have to thank everybody afterwards, but it's not the same guy that did the presentation who's thanking everybody, because now there's a sense of humility that sort of arises. And every Dharma talk I've ever given, after listening to it, if it's been recorded, I know I could have done it better. I left out something, I should have added this. And that's a really good thing. I haven't had the perfect Dharma talk yet. It keeps me humble to a certain extent that maybe one day all conditions will come together and it will be the perfect Dharma talk. And everybody that listens and hears it will become enlightened. They go, wow. Just like the Buddha. So far, not even close. But, you know, you keep doing it. So I say thank you, I say thank you, thank you, thank you realizing that the person that spoke is not the person that's saying thank you. That there's two different people and generally the audience hasn't seen the migration of me from Kusala to humble person who could have done it better and thanks for coming and listening and spending your precious time. And then everybody goes and then I drive back. And, I, and that's just sort of like, okay, wow, what happened? What experience happened? How did you put that together? Where you need an audience, you need a presenter, and then you need to collapse time. And that's probably the hardest thing to do when you're giving a presentation, is to collapse the time for the people listening. So there's no past or future. It's just this present moment experience. You know? And then the gong rings, and then time comes back. Time to leave. Wow. Where did the time go? So that's, that for me is the joy, but that's 
what I imagine Mark Twain did every time he spoke is he collapsed the time for the people listening. And he spoke as Mark Twain, and then he got off the stage, and he wasn't any longer. The compassion, the compassion and activity that we can manifest, we can't take credit for. It's not ours. It manifests because of conditions. It manifests because of our practice, our understanding of, of empathy and sympathy, our understanding that everyone today in this room, in 100 years, will be dead. And it'll be, really? Yeah. This is so special. Because 100 years from now, none of us will be here. This is cool. But, but if that's the case, was there anyone here in the first place? Well, there were some manifestations. And there were some ideas that, yeah, we were here. But every time I do something, it's less and less I do it. It's more just activity that happens because people are suffering. Or animals are suffering. Or plants are suffering. Or the list goes on. So, I don't take credit for it as much as I used to. Here, it's interesting because there's a little envelope with some money that people said, give this to Kusla after he talks. But I don't know who put the money in there. And apparently they don't want to come up and say, hey, I gave you some money. You know? Thank you. That's very kind. So there's this sort of like, how can I practice this generosity? How can I practice this kindness? How can I practice this this commitment to making the world better and not want credit for it? And not expect a thank you? And not want something on my wall that says, I'm a wonderful person? <laughs> you know? And I've spoken about this before, but I'll speak about it again. So I started with vending machine coin slots. I would leave the change behind as a way of giving anonymously to the world. That's where it started. And then sometimes I'll give money to people, but it's not because of who I am, because they don't know who I am. It's more because of the circumstance therein that I feel compelled to share some of my riches, which are few, and, and, and then leave. Oftentimes, on Vermont, English is not the first language, and so there's nothing even to say. You know, And then you walk away. And what are they going to do with it? I, I don't know. I don't know. Will it change their life? No. With as much money as I gave them, it won't change their life. It may buy them a soda, but probably not. Sodas are really expensive now. Like almost two bucks, 16 ounces. Yeah. And, and the cats and the fish, you know, they're so happy to eat. Nothing. Nothing. No thank you. We're glad you're here. What a wonderful person you are to feed us every day. Nothing. So I have a lot of practice in, in giving without expecting anything in return. And 
And that allows me to, to have less ego attachment to the giving and be less disappointed when the giving doesn't manifest in a way I thought it might or should or could and realize that, yeah, there's just so many more conditions that go in to the activity of compassion than me. It's not just me. I am one of the contributing factors in all the activities of compassion I find myself in. And there are 9,999 other contributing factors that make it happen. And it's seamless, and it feels like it's one, but it's always many that are connected. Okay, okay. Now, what will this do for me? What's the benefit of love and kindness and compassion and activity? The benefit is, I will have less greed. That's a good thing. I will have less hatred. That's a good thing. I will have more wisdom. That's a really good thing. So this practice is ultimately designed to help me. All the love and kindness I practice, all the compassion and activity I practice, it's all designed not to change the world, because the world is flawed and can never be perfect. Not to change the people in the world, because you can't change the people in the world, because each one of them is unique, and you don't know what they're going through. And even if you did, there's nothing you could say or do to change that until they want to change that. So you have to let them be, encourage their growth, but not demand it. And and, and the wisdom aspect, for me, is the most important. And the wisdom aspect in Buddhism that comes out of love and kindness and generosity and compassion and activity is the realization that we're all interconnected and interdependent. That we do not stand alone or apart. And that one dollar shared affects all of us together. And and with that as my wisdom, I continue to get up in the morning and do my loving-kindness meditation. No obvious results on a daily basis, but over the course of a lifetime, it can be looked at this. As I look back on my life, it's not what I thought or who I was that made the difference. It's what I did. <laughs>